It's the 14th of May, 2021. Welcome to the Room Now podcast. I'm Jack Cush, your host and editor of RoomNow.com. Today we're going to talk about some FDA hearings, some uh, new interesting research, some CDC news that's going to change your life. Let's start with that. I think maybe the big news from yesterday, Thursday, was the CDC announcing no more masks. Really? Why do I have 19 of them in every pocket and 24 in my car and still can't find one at the clinic? Well, masks have become a big part of our lives. I think that they've been gigantically important. Just look at the numbers of influenza, not only in your family, but in your city, state, and country. There's basically no seasonal influenza this year with everybody wearing a mask. That should teach you something. Well, based on the recent data where the numbers of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have been plummeting, have been going way down, and recent evidence suggesting that as a result of vaccination, these these numbers are going down, now we're seeing uh, guidelines that are going to maybe change some of the behaviors we have. First, masks. Now, you didn't need to wear a mask if you're outside, if you were exercising and running and in low-risk, low-volume uh, situations. Now the CDC is saying that you do that if you're vaccinated and if you're fully vaccinated, that means two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine or one dose of J&J's vaccine, uh, and you're two weeks out from your last dose of that COVID vaccination, they consider you to be fully vaccinated. And then, yes, you don't need to wear a mask outdoors you don't need to wear a mask indoors in low-risk situations. Um, and that you, for most places, you really don't need to wear a mask. But they do say that um, the rules of your province, your state, your city, the establishment you're going into, uh, including hospitals and clinics, um, still supersede this directive. Meaning that if the rule is that you need to wear a, cl- a, a mask to get into my clinic, you're still going to have to wear a mask. If the rule is you need a mask to get into Home Depot, you still have to wear a mask. That's the rules, and I think we have to follow them. Again, this is about keeping other people safe. Masking and social distancing is now being uh, pushed to the side in low-risk situations for vaccinated individuals. However, still in high-volume, high-traffic situations, distancing and masking is still required. Um, there, you can probably travel now. The FDA, the CDC does say that non-essential travel, travel should be discouraged, but essential travel can be done. There are rules regarding international travel that you should probably look up. Again, one of the reasons to get this out there was to one, congratulate everybody on all the good work that they've done two to let everybody know that things have improved and three to use this information as an enticement for those who have not yet been vaccinated to go ahead and get vaccinated so you can partake in these new rules. Will that work? I don't know. I don't know if you've seen the data about people being entered into million dollar lotteries if they get the vaccine and all kinds of enticements by certain states and cities. I actually am in favor of it because it's going to be very, very hard to get to 270 million people vaccinated. And we, you know, that last stretch We should fight hard to get there. When we have that, we're all going to be protected. So, again, please encourage your patients. I spend more time when I find out one of my patients has not been vaccinated on begging them, truly begging them to get vaccinated. 
The CDC came out with other interesting data um, uh, in MMWR just yesterday. Uh, a study of 33 sites, uh, 25 states, looked at healthcare personnel who've been vaccinated versus those who've not been vaccinated to look at vaccine efficacy. And what they showed was if you received your two doses of Moderna and or uh, um, the Pfizer vaccine, you were 94% protected. Exactly the same number that they saw in the clinical trials. But they gave very important numbers on those who only received one dose of the two-dose regimen. And their results in this pretty large study, um, nationwide study done between January and March of this year, showed 82% of patients were protected if they received just one dose. So not as good as the 94%, but still pretty good. They do, in that MMWR review, the results saying it ranges from 52 to 57%, but more recent studies in healthcare workers looks like it's about 70 to 82%. Uh, protected if you receive just one dose. So maybe you don't need to be really hard on people who haven't yet had their second dose. I think these are important studies. Uh, we have a, a triple play from uh, Rheumatology, the journal, some good stuff this month. Um, I, I like this particular study about psoriatic arthritis patients. And it basically said that um, if they were overweight, that they were less likely to achieve low disease activity state. You know, there are reports out there showing that psoriatic arthritis patients who lose weight get um, in clinical improvement just by losing weight. Uh, and this data sort of reinforces. However, being overweight and not being able to achieve low disease activity state mainly applies to women, not to men. That's curious. And that's a new wrinkle here. In their study of 855 patients, overall women uh, men and women were treated about the same, but women did have worse disease activity, disease activity scores. Uh, and uh, maybe there's, again, something to uh, be said there. This is not the first time women have had poorer outcomes than men. Another study, this one from uh, Johns Hopkins, looked at um, the use of JAK inhibitors, specifically tofacitinib. Uh, and, and we know that they're being used now in refractory cases of dermatomyositis. In this particular report, uh, the Hopkins investigators give three cases of patients with dermatomyositis with calcinosis. And while their joints, I'm sorry, while their skin and their muscle scores improved, so did their calcinosis. That's surprising. Again, the mechanism which needs to be investigated, I think this needs to be looked for. I, I, I don't really have a great therapy for my patients with calcinosis. In their patients, they, two of them were NXP2 positive. One was TIF1 gamma positive. As you know, um, uh, NXP2 is frequently associated with uh, calcinosis in patients with uh, inflammatory myositis. So I think that's a surprising report. Uh, the best treatment I have for calcinosis at this point is surgical excision and a good relationship with the plastic surgeon. Uh, our last report from rheumatology is a retrospective study of 419 patients with gout who were starting urate-lowering therapy, mostly allopurinol, some febuxostat, and they looked at patients who were either, and this is a retrospective uh, analysis, um, and they looked at patients who were treated with low-dose colchicine, meaning 0.6 milligrams once a day, versus standard-dose colchicine, 0.6 milligrams BID. In the end, um, they had the same outcomes. Gout flare rates were roughly the same. The low dose had 14% flare rates. Uh, the regular dose had 11% flare rates. As you might imagine, patients who were receiving the lower dose had reasons 
to be on lower dose like renal insufficiency and comorbidities, et cetera. But nonetheless, many of us have done one dose a day with the hope that it would work, and this data sort of backs that up. Uh, I don't know if you're, have you experienced this or not, but Marty Bergman, good friend and pal, uh, sent me an email asking about sulfasalazine in short supply. Am I noticing, do I have any info? I hadn't noticed any problem with short source supply sulfasalazine, but then listening to my peers, it seems like this is a not uncommon problem right now. And sure enough, if you look at those sites that monitor drug supply shortages, there's one from the FDA, there's one from a pharmacy website called ASHP. Both of them note that sulfasalazine is in short supply currently. The uh, pharmacy website says it's going to come back with replenished supplies at the end of this month or certainly by July. The FDA site looking at the uh, results of eight different generic manufacturers, not so kind, either half of them saying unknown, two of them saying, uh, one saying July and the other saying last quarter of 2021. So we might be in for a long haul without sulfasalazine. Um, your patients may have to shop around. Uh, a tweet this week from Yale uh, School of Medicine and the Rheumatology Division says five reasons to see a rheumatologist. Number one, unexplained worsening joint or muscle pain. Number two, repeated joint pain and swelling with fevers or rashes. Number three, to establish an early diagnosis for your chronic joint complaints. Number four, to review abnormal labs and get a treatment plan. Number five, attacks of gout. Those seem reasonable. My reasons to, uh, and if I'm promoting rheumatology referrals, I want patients referred to me who I can make easy, fast decisions on. A lot of them are going to be reassuring people who have no disease, that they have no disease and they don't need to see other rheumatologists. So patients who have chronic joint symptoms that have been undiagnosed should be referred. Patients with recurrent joint symptoms, um, should, especially if it involves swelling, should also be referred. Patients with joint symptoms and a family history, patients with joint symptoms, and an abnormal lab. Many of those are going to be one-and-done consults with a lot of reassurance to the patient. That's a high-value consultation for the patient uh, and for the referring doctor. Uh, and for you who want to see um, a cohort of patients with chronic disease, real disease, rheumatoid, gout, lupus, etc., these are reasonable um, reasons for the referral because a portion of those patients will have real disease and will require your ongoing care. Another pearl this week came up during one of our clinics. We talked about how you follow scleroderma patients. I follow scleroderma patients by doing uh, um, a good exam, good history, but a modified rotten and skin score. You should all do that like you do your hack score, your rapid three score, and then score that and follow it serially. You'll know how your patient is doing. But what if the patient's problem is digital ulcers. And that can be seen with widespread scleroderma, limited scleroderma, even patients with problematic primary rainouts. So I follow them with what I call a Band-Aid count. Band-Aid count? Yeah, actually, I think the number of Band-Aids that a patient uses to cover up lesions that they think are problematic, oozing, painful, etc., is good enough for me. A patient thinks it's important to put a Band-Aid on it, you should count the Band-Aids. Works really, really well, in fact. Now, I, I researched this a little bit, and if you look at the digital ulcer studies, they do complex things with digital photography and calculating of the digital ulcer size and burden and da-da-da. You, you can't do this in practice. Do the, digi do the digital Band-Aid count. That seems to work. And 
one total band-aid count for both hands counts. Um, a systematic review of RA patients shows that the, the prevalence of RA is really quite low. It's 50 or so cases per one per 10,000. It's a little bit higher if the people making the diagnosis are rheumatologists, 80 per 10,000. I guess that means that rheumatologists might be better at making the diagnosis. I think so. The FDA had a hearing last week about Avacapan. This is the small molecule oral inhibitor of C5A. It's being tested and reported uh, in patients with ANCA-positive uh, ANCA vasculitis. It was sort of a hit of last year's ACR meeting. It's been in the room now. We've talked about it. It works great. It works as good as, if not better than, maybe safer than steroids. It just happens to be a lot more expensive. Well, it went in front of the FDA. And an arthritis advisory panel didn't really like it as much as I thought that they would, meaning that the vote on the efficacy of the drug in the one trial presented to the panel was split nine to nine. The vote on its efficacy was also split 10 to eight. The overall split was 10 to eight. Doesn't sound like it's gonna be enough to get the drug approved. You can get a drug approved with a single trial at the FDA. They prefer more than one trial, usually two or more. But if you've got a, a definitive, really um, impressive trial, well done, well powered, um, the FDA would approve it. Problem is they did approve the company doing their one trial and submitting it to uh, the FDA for consideration, except this got shot down by an arthritis advisory panel. They're gonna go have to go back to the drawing board if they want to get FDA approval. I like the report from the beginning of this week from Michelle Petrie and colleagues showing their results with hydroxychloroquine blood levels, reducing the risk of thrombosis in patients with lupus. This is a, a study of three, 739 patients with lupus from the, um, the Hopkins uh, lupus clinic. Um, about 5.1% of those patients had thrombosis uh, as they were followed up. And when they analyzed the hydroxychloroquine blood levels, uh, they showed that having low drug blood levels were associated with a higher risk of thrombotic events, or conversely, that thrombotic events were reduced 69% if the hydroxychloroquine blood level was greater than 1,000 nanograms per ml. I don't know about you, but I'd love to do hydroxychloroquine blood levels, except I can't get them. I guess I could. I did a search. It's not available from LabCorp or Quest. It is available from Exogen. Uh, Michelle gets them done in her lab. This is basically, um, uh, I think, a, a liquid chromatography with spectrometry. I'm not sure the methodology, but it's complex. It's not routine. It's not nephilometry or usual um, lab test. Your lab would have to set it up, which means that you have to have a high volume. We're talking to our lab where I work about maybe doing this. It would be, I think, a real advantage. It's not just a measure of compliance. It could also be an important measure on therapeutic efficacy, especially for something like thrombotic events. Um, our last report is um, about risk factors for RA-associated ILD. This comes from uh, uh, Jeff Sparks and colleagues was reported in Journal of Rheumatology uh, this month. It's a nested case control study where they showed that your patients with RA are at greater risk for ILD if they have any one of these factors. Any one of these factors gives you a two to three-fold increased risk. Hence, a combination of these factors might be a bad sign for your patients. This would include high CRPs, um, high hack scores, uh, 
a 30-pack year history or more of smoking and obesity. Those four factors were associated with an increased risk of uh, ILD due to RA, which is not a good finding and is associated with a lot of comorbidity, a lot of morbidity, if not mortality. So that's it for this week. I want you to uh, be sure to have seen the Tuesday night rheumatology that we had this past Tuesday on RA and lung. I lectured about RA and pneumonia. Jeff Sparks lectured about RA and ILD. You can find that on the website. You can find that where you get your podcast. Be sure to tune in in the next three Tuesday nights. Tuesday Night Rheumatology is going to feature a session next week on spondyloarthritis, the week after on RA and vaccination and liver disease in RA. And the last session is going to be Michelle Petrie and others talking about lupus. These are all sessions from Room Now Live. Hope you enjoyed this week. Be good. Stay safe.